Elective surgeries suspended. Right now, the need to staff surge capacity means that we'll have to reduce some services. The drastic move to get record hospitalizations under control. The new no-fly zone. We are very supportive of the federal government stopping flights coming into Canada right now. Direct flights from COVID hotspots now banned from touching down. And multiple forces team up for an assault on gang violence. You just never know. You've got to really be aware of your surroundings. Why we're all at risk in the new reality. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We're about to pass an important milestone. Starting tomorrow, those 18 years and older will be eligible to register for a COVID-19 vaccination. That is the good news, but health officials say there is growing concern tonight about our rising hospitalizations. We have 1,006 new cases today, bringing BC's total to 122,757. More than 8,700 of those cases are active, with 13,846 people currently self-isolating. 502 people are in hospital, 161 of them in the ICU, and four more people have died. And that surge in COVID-19 hospitalizations in B.C. is now starting to impact other medical procedures. Health Minister Adrian Dix announced this afternoon all elective surgeries will be cancelled for the next two weeks at nine lower mainland hospitals. Richard Zussman tells us who will be affected. We're going into the COVID unit, right? Packed hospitals, concerns growing, surgeries postponed. Right now, the need to staff surge capacity means that we'll have to reduce some services. Postponements of non-urgent scheduled surgeries now will take place at Abbotsford Regional, Burnaby, Surrey Memorial and Royal Columbian Hospitals in Fraser Health for a total of 750 surgeries postponed. In Vancouver Coastal, postponements at Lionsgate, UBC, Richmond, St. Paul's and Vancouver General Hospital for a thousand surgeries. For those patients that have already been called or will be called to postpone their surgery, and for patients whose surgery we aren't able to book at this time, I make the same assurance we made to patients last March. You will not be forgotten. Hospitalizations in BC hitting a record high. The province reporting 502 people in hospital, up nearly 200 over the last month. The pressure on our healthcare system is immense right now, and our healthcare workers need our help. Urgent and emergency surgeries will continue. The scheduled operations will be postponed for at least two weeks and will continually be reviewed. We really are trying to care for the people in critical condition in our ICUs, and we really do not have the staff that uh, available to be able to care for the numbers of patients that are being admitted right now. And it's not just Metro Vancouver hospitals feeling the pressure. There's a strain on facilities across the province, including in Victoria. And that's why help from doctors and nurses won't be sent to the lower mainland. We're in a nursing shortage across the province and we're continuing to see pressure in all of our facilities. Most of our large acute care hospitals are over 100% capacity. Some nurses that were scheduled to work vaccination clinics now moving back into acute care. The province wants people to know if they have an emergency, COVID or not, the hospitals are still open. 
do not be afraid if you're having chest pain, if you're having an exacerbation of a condition that you know needs hospital care, you must go. And the emergency departments are there to serve you, the hospitals are there to serve you, and they're safe. And by postponing these surgeries, BC hoping to keep them safe, to ensure nurses, doctors, and so many others can maintain the COVID fight. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. And Keith Baldry joins us now with more on this. Keith, there's also some concern about vaccine delays and whether or not the second dose is going to match the first dose. We might have mm -hmm. to do a little mixing and matching here. Yeah, we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, first, though, the back to remaining on hospitalizations. The daily number uh, really doesn't reflect how many people are in hospital from any given day. In fact, we were about 140 a week uh, a few weeks ago, 300 a week a couple weeks ago. Now we're about 400 a week. Take a look at these numbers in terms of getting a grasping, again, why Fraser and Vancouver Coastal are getting the surgeries cancelled. 161 between April 4th and 10th were in Fraser hospitals and 279 as of today. Vancouver Coastal, again, putting up very high numbers, but it's a different story elsewhere in the province. The interior, again, 22 cases of hospitalizations in that one week period today, 32, not much growth there. A bit of an uptick, as Richard just pointed out, in Vancouver Island from 9 to 32 as of today. In Northern Health Authority, again, uh, good news there. They're actually increasing the number of uh, surgeries in the north because their hospitalizations have been going down. Now, back to vaccinations. There has been a concern from some people as second doses approach for, for an increasingly large number of people. Uh, the concern is our vaccine delivery has been kind of spotty, particularly with the Moderna uh, vaccine. We're really not getting it in a reliable basis. But 280,000 people have had first doses of Moderna. The question to Dr. Bonnie Henry today, what about that? Can you actually mix and match vaccines? And she says work is being done uh, actively on that in the UK. We are also watching uh, the mix and match studies that are happening in the UK and whether it might be better uh, for people to get uh, their second dose with an mRNA vaccine, for example, to give added protection for a longer period of time. So those studies aren't done yet. We don't have an answer to those. Um, but when we know those things, we'll be offering the options to people um, in the coming weeks and months. So second doses will be there probably six weeks from now for some people. Uh, tomorrow morning, though, I have a lot of interest in this. Uh, Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth will unveil the new travel restrictions for highways and ferries. That's at 9.30 tomorrow, and we'll be carrying that live on BC1. Sounds good. Thanks very much, Keith. The federal government has bowed to growing pressure and banned all private and commercial passenger flights from India and Pakistan. As Aaron MacArthur reports, exploding COVID-19 rates in both countries left Ottawa with little choice. While it's been hinted at all week, the federal government finally moving on a travel ban with India. Direct passenger flights to and from India and Pakistan have been paused for the next 30 days. The transportation minister also announcing restrictions on people trying to enter Canada indirectly through a third country. Passengers who depart from India or Pakistan to Canada via an indirect route will need to obtain a negative COVID-19 pre-departure test at their last point from departure. Doctors are supportive of this pause from India, which has become the world's largest hotspot. A surge in COVID cases there have been linked to the B1617 variant, which is already in Canada. At least 39 cases reported in B.C., so while India accounts for 20% of recent air travel volumes to Canada, over 50% of all positive tests 
conducted at the border are from this country. We don't know the transmissibility about it, how effective the vaccines are against it, and how our own immune system will react compared to other ones. So I think we need time to figure out that information. Critics of the move say an outright travel ban is less effective than stronger screening and quarantine measures on arrival. There are concerns being raised about the risk this ban poses to the South Asian community. It's to do with one community. It is to do with health and safety of Canadians, which is the top priority for our government, and that is why we are doing it. The flight ban begins 8.30 Thursday night. Air Canada expects one last flight to land at YVR Friday morning. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Well, despite new travel restrictions going into effect, some British Columbians are still booking driver road tests out of town in an attempt to skip long wait lines. But as Kylie Stanton reports, people in smaller towns who are now forced to wait months for theirs say that's not only unfair, it's dangerous. When it comes to the rules of the road, Alexis Reinkober is pretty confident. But actually getting a test to allow her to get behind the wheel solo, well, that's proving to be the real challenge. It would just be nice to like get it when I'm able to. The 17-year-old is eligible for her N license next month but we'll have to wait far longer than that for a test. In Nanaimo, some appointments are being booked six months out. The Reinkobers claim it's largely due to prospective drivers making road trips for road tests. People are coming from uh, the lower mainland, uh, Victoria, places like that. They have to signal mirror and shoulder. Back in January, it was estimated 30% of the tests being conducted on Vancouver Island were for people living elsewhere. While that has eased up a bit, many are still trying to jump the queue. Great. And even with the recently announced travel restrictions, tests don't have to be booked in a driver's home region. What begs the question, is it considered essential? I wouldn't consider essential travel. No, it's not. Your better chance of getting a test is definitely in the lower mainland. ICBC echoes that statement, saying currently there is more availability for road tests in the lower mainland compared to Vancouver Island. So there is no advantage for lower mainland residents to book road tests on Vancouver Island. The Solicitor General was not clear if travelling for tests would be considered essential, but said the province is looking at the issue. And there may be measures that ICBC can do a workaround or something like that. The Rhinecobers have some suggestions. I think that they should be cancelling all appointments from outside of our local area. Six months is, is a long time. As for Alexis, that just means a whole lot more practice. Kylie Stanton, Global News. Three deadly shootings in less than a week, all of them with connections to gangs. And today, a rare multi-jurisdictional appeal for information and a warning that innocent bystanders might be caught in the crossfire. That's next on the News Hour. Former Solicitor General Shirley Bond on what she did and didn't do as dirty money flowed through BC casinos. Coming up on the News Hour. And new developments after a road rage murder case collapsed. What BC's Attorney General is doing about it later. Right now, though, police in the Lower Mainland are growing more concerned about the brazen nature of the region's growing gang war. Yes, the, uh, they confirmed that three shooting victims since Saturday all have links to gang activity. All of the killings were in crowded public spaces. And as Jordan Armstrong reports, no one is safe while this continues. 
A one-time MMA fighter known for his powerful punch has been knocked out in BC's gang war. Police identifying 46-year-old Todd Gowenberg as the man assassinated outside Langley Sportsplex Wednesday morning. His involvement in gangs spans almost 20 years and he was connected to the United Nations gang. He would be classified as the muscle of a gang to go out and collect drug debts. A well-connected guy whose killing could be tough to solve, says a retired gang squad officer. What goes around comes around, right? He's thugged enough people that uh, he's got a lot of enemies, so that'll be one of those ones that's hard to figure out. Police are still trying to figure out any possible links to two other targeted executions since Saturday. On that night, 31-year-old Harb Dollywall of the UN rival Brothers Keeper gang was gunned down in Vancouver's Coal Harbour. Monday evening, 20-year-old Bailey McKinney shot dead beside a basketball court near Coquitlam Town Centre. Thursday, Lower Mainland Police Agencies held a joint briefing to insist they are working together to stop the spate of shootings. Including intelligence-led enforcement, investigations, patrols, and educating our youth and our community on the dangers of associating with gangs. This gang war, worse than others, believes Doug Spencer. He says allegiances now change quickly, and gone are the days when gangsters would settle a dispute over drinks, the beers replaced by bullets. His warning to the public, be vigilant, expect more violence. I mean, if you see four or five big muscle-bound guys with tattoos and chains, it doesn't mean they're gang members. But if they sit down beside you on a patio downtown, I might move where I'm sitting. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. The man convicted in the 2016 killing of an Abbotsford teen has been found criminally responsible for his actions. Gabriel Klein's lawyer argued the attack was triggered by a psychotic episode. But as Jennifer Palmer reports, the judge disagreed. Red painted rocks saying never forgotten and hashtag Abby Strong are placed on the steps of the new Westminster courthouse in memory and honor of 13-year-old Letitia Reimer. Her loved ones in court ready to hear if the man who killed her will be found criminally responsible due to a mental disorder or not. The judge found he was criminally responsible. Everyone's happy that uh, the NCR ruling is off the table. That was an absolutely ridiculous tactic by uh, the child killer and his counsel. Gabrielle Klein was in court when Justice Holm read out her decision. She wasn't convinced it was psychosis he was experiencing or a mental disorder, highlighting he was incredible, reliable and was inconsistent in his testimony. Klein has been diagnosed with schizophrenia. When he has said different things at different times to different psychologists or psychiatrists and says different things at different times in a courtroom and Justice Holmes today found that Mr. Klein was not credible and not reliable. Klein was convicted in 2020 of second-degree murder and the stabbing death of Letitia Reimer, and he was also found guilty of the aggravated assault of her friend. He testified he believed the girls he was stabbing inside Abbotsford Senior Secondary were a witch and a monster. Klein applied for a hearing over criminal responsibility as sentencing was set to begin. He expected this result. Um, 
it's not a surprise. They're still living this every single day. I mean, her birthday was just recently, uh, just recently passed, Letitia's birthday that is. Uh, of course, we're at about five and a half years since, since the murder took place. His case will now proceed to sentencing, which will take place towards the end of June. In the meantime, he has been remanded to the forensic psychiatric hospital. Jennifer Palma, Global News. A Surrey woman has been found not guilty of criminal negligence causing death in the crash that killed a teen soccer star. Travis Sellier was gravely injured and died two days after the incident in May of 2017. Our Paul Johnson is live with more on the verdict and the reaction. Paul. Sophie, imagine how difficult this verdict was for the people involved here. No one is disputing that the driving of the woman accused here was responsible for Travis Sellier's death. But, I mean, because she was going far too fast at the time and she was driving totally out of control. But two years after the accident, two doctors diagnosed her as having epilepsy and said her conditions and the actions that night in 2017 were consistent with having an epileptic seizure. The judge accepted that argument and ruled she could not be held criminally negligent, resulting in Sellier's death. This courtroom was packed with Sellier's family and loved ones. They were stunned and outraged. Here's Sellier's sister. Travis was a kid who gave everything his all. Everything was always 110%. He tried his hardest, whatever he could, in whatever endeavor he tried. And just to see that this justice system has let us down, and Travis down so tremendously, after four years of pain and torture, and so many times of having to relive all the details that led up, all the negligence that led up to such an amazing kid, his death, it just tears my already broken heart into a billion more pieces just to know that there's not even one shred of justice that could happen here. Sellier was a popular and well-known young man in his community. He was also an outstanding soccer player, and there were big expectations about his future in that sport. In the courtroom today, many of his supporters, family and friends, were wearing jerseys with his name and number on them. Sophie. All right, thanks for that, Paul. Paul Johnson reporting tonight. Such a tragedy. Still to come... Getting groceries the easy way. More and more people are opting to have them delivered, but that convenience comes with a price that isn't always obvious. Also ahead, the Fed's budget half a billion dollars to save wild salmon. The big question is, how will they spend it? Good evening. Traffic is steady both ways over here at the Alex Fraser Bridge, but keep in mind there's some overnight maintenance at the north end on the Anasis Channel Bridge from 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. Kermac Collision and Auto Glass provides no-cost windshield chip repairs with your insurance coverage, and Kermac donates 100% of their income from chip repairs through Kermac Cares for Kids. I'm Tristy Wisson in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Well, many people have turned to online grocery shopping during the pandemic, and while it might be a convenient way to shop, things like delivery fees can add up quickly. Here to tell us more about what you need to know before you click order at the checkout is our Consumer Matters reporter, Andrew. And Thanks, Sophie. As you know, convenience often comes with a price. When it comes to delivery fees and online platforms that do your shopping for you, there are some extra costs to consider. 
Instead of making the trip here, walking down the aisle and standing in line, for some, the convenience of grocery shopping from the comfort of your home is more appealing, saving time and the cost of gas. But before you click away, consider those delivery fees. The delivery time window for when your groceries are dropped off at your door can impact delivery fees and often vary by time slot. Short delivery time windows will often cost you more, while longer delivery windows can cut those fees in half. Free delivery is often an option, but drop-off times can be less flexible. When it comes to shopping online, keep in mind the price of items are based on your scheduled day of delivery. Some items are subject to deal expiration dates. Everybody needs fresh food. That's why we deliver it to your door. Then there's Instacart, a grocery and delivery pickup service partnered with participating retailers. It involves a customer ordering groceries, and the shopping is done by a personal shopper. Instacart has several fees, including delivery fees. Instacart Express members get free delivery on orders over $35 per retailer. Service fees, which go towards operational costs, and a heavy fee for, well, you guessed it, heavy items. There's also the option of tipping. 100% goes directly to the shopper delivering your order. Also, retail partners set the item prices on the Instacart marketplace, which means prices on the Instacart site may vary from in-store and may be higher in some instances. When we compared prices, we found this 4-liter jug of 2% milk on Instacart was $5.10, compared to going directly online to a major grocery retailer at $4.65. This brick of butter on Instacart, $5.65 compared to $5.15 when shopping online directly with the individual grocery store. Instacart is here to help. While coupons and in-store discounts are sometimes available on Instacart, Instacart also states some in-store sales and promotions may not apply. So when it comes to online grocery platforms, take the time and look at the details when it comes to pricing and delivery costs. Also, some retailers may offer discounts on your first order as an incentive to sign up. Others also offer digital coupons to help you save money and earn points. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. All right. Thanks for that, Ann. BC's salmon stocks have seen a shocking 93% decline over the past three decades. And now the feds have committed nearly $650 million to stop it. How that money is spent will be critical. And Linda Aylesworth shows us the priorities addressing everything from habitat destruction to open net pens. It's hard to believe that something as vital and iconic as Pacific salmon could disappear. And yet, that is the path we've put them on. I think all of us in Canada want to avoid going down the historical road of, you know, the loss of cod on the East Coast. Fisheries mismanagement resulted in the collapse of the cod 30 years ago. But the recent federal budget offers hope for Pacific salmon with a commitment of $647 million towards their recovery. We know how important uh, wild Pacific salmon are to British Columbians, um, to their cultural identity, to First Nations. And we need to do everything we can to protect and, and conserve and grow those populations. It's a really significant budget for salmon, but uh, how they implement it is going to be absolutely key. And we can't mess this up. We are hopeful that a, a good focus on habitat restoration uh, with community and Indigenous leadership will be a part of that money. As well as improving data collection on how many fish there are and how many are being caught. As for open net salmon farms, which the government is committed to remove by 2025, 
we're happy to see $20 million being invested in, in how do we transition. That money will be spent on two years of consultation to create a plan. Consultation is great, but it can't be a delay tactic. Those salmon farms are out there right now impacting the young wild salmon. Every year that, that we delay getting them out is, a, is another year of impact. There's also concern that some of the funding has been slated to build more hatcheries. They have more negative consequences than positive consequences if your goal is to rebuild long-term wild salmon populations. But on the whole, the funding's being welcomed, even celebrated. This is a good budget for salmon. It's the most significant federal budget that, um, that we've seen in many years. It's a big investment, uh, but we've got to make sure that we commit to the long term to really make sure that we don't go the direction of cod on the East Coast. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Up next, new developments in a bungled investigation. Global News first brought to light after a deadly road rage shooting and a suspect allowed to walk. The B.C. Solicitor General is stepping in. And a new study on the lasting impact of blows to the head and a game-changing way to detect it. Traffic is moving well both ways right now at the Massey Tunnel. Keep in mind, though, that overnight maintenance and paving happens inside the Massey Tunnel during the overnight hours. Time to renew your home insurance. Switch to BCAA for local knowledge, customized coverage, and valuable ways to save. Visit BCAA.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Massey Tunnel. The B.C. government is looking at a possible appeal of a high-profile case that saw a man accused of murder acquitted. The Salmon Deep Gill decision also raises some serious questions about how many other homicide cases are now potentially in jeopardy. Ramina Dea now with more on an announcement today by the Attorney General. The court granted an injunction on four hours' notice for... An independent set of eyes, ordered from the top. Law professor Craig Jones, a former supervising counsel of the Constitutional and Administrative Law Group in the Ministry of Justice, will now review the Deep Gill decision. It is significant and not without historic precedent. He's more than capable of looking at this. Attorney General David Eby ordering a review in the Gill case in which Justice Masuhara called IHIT's conduct over years egregious, flagrant, and disappointing. If you have a police agency that has decided, despite advice to the contrary, to not follow the law, it's very appropriate to have those convictions reviewed to determine whether there is a miscarriage of justice. Gill was acquitted of second-degree murder and attempted murder last month in connection to a deadly road rage shooting involving an innocent, newlywed couple in Surrey a decade ago. The case crumbled after crucial Crown evidence was thrown out in March. Alleged audio of the shooting captured on a cell phone seized by police from Gill's home deemed inadmissible. Evie moving ahead despite the BC Prosecution Service's conclusion that there are no reasonable arguments here that would lead to a successful Crown appeal in the Gill case. Eby believes there's strong public interest in an appeal, given Gill was not tried for a serious violent crime. Plus, there's the potential impact of the Gill decision on other cases. At the end of the day, we do want people brought to justice. But we don't want people 
wrongfully convicted. Romina Dea, Global News. At a time when the media spotlight was on suspicious cash entering casinos, the issue didn't seem top of mind for those responsible for gaming in this province, including Shirley Bond, the now interim leader of the B.C. Liberals. Bond says when she took over as minister responsible for gaming in 2011, she doesn't remember being briefed on the issue. John Hua has more from today's Cullen Commission on Money Laundering. The media had already raised concerns about BC casinos accepting stacks of suspicious cash. We were all of the same mind that this has to be dirty money. A high-ranking police officer publicly stated he believed it was the proceeds of crime. The provincial government even commissioned a review of anti-money laundering measures in casinos, later called the Croker Report. Did you know during the time as the minister responsible for gaming that some high limit players were buying in for hundreds of thousands of dollars, predominantly in $20 bills? I was not. Uh, that, that was not raised uh, directly to my attention. But Shirley Bond, the provincial minister responsible for gaming in 2011, told the Cullen Commission when she took over the file that March. In meetings with BC Lottery Corporation Brass, money laundering wasn't brought up. The conversations I recall with Mr. Graydon were more focused about problem gaming than they were, uh, and that, of course, relates to the issue of addictions. As for the regulator, Bond said she was never told directly by the gaming policy and enforcement branch. The large amounts of cash continued to be accepted in casinos. The now interim leader of the B.C. Liberal Party also didn't ask. I did not make that specific request because the audit was important in terms of the, uh, which ultimately resulted in the Croker report. Bond's takeaway from that 2011 report, anti-money laundering measures in casinos were good enough but could be better. Her job implementing Croker's 10 recommendations. The first nine recommendations were the immediate priority, knowing that they could make a material difference. Consideration of the final recommendation, a joint casino task force held off. According to Bond's media briefing notes, the reason is complexity and cost. The primary consideration for me as minister was what could we do uh, that would make an immediate impact. The Cullen Commission also heard from one of BC's top public servants. Laurie Wanamaker is the current deputy minister to the premier. I believe there were a number of media stories at the beginning of January in 2011. And that's when it came to my attention. From 2010 to 2012, Wanamaker was the deputy minister responsible for gaming. The main point of contact for the head of the regulator, who said he made it clear criminal cash in casinos was a concern. Yes, she was aware that I believe that uh, proceeds of crime. Um, Yes, that proceeds of crime was entering the casinos. Absolutely. Being given that key information, something Wanamaker just can't recall. Um, Did he raise to your attention um, his belief that the cash might be the proceeds of crime? Not that I recall. And was that a concern that you had at the time? No, I don't believe I did. In fact, Wanamaker didn't seem to remember any specific discussions around possible money laundering in casinos. Was that a concern of yours at the time? No, I don't believe it was. Which begs the question, why did Wanamaker help commission a review on anti-money laundering measures in casinos if no one within government brought it up as a concern? John Hua, Global News. Here's the hit now. Here's the play there. 
by Romanov. Gone are the days when one player slams another, and the simple question of how many fingers do you see was about as diagnostic as it got. Myers with a high hit on Armia right in front of the penalty box. Now a Surrey company has come up with a portable device that can measure the health of the brain. It could effectively end all those subjective debates that go on about whether someone is concussed or not. Their results are their results. There is no debate. These are your brain waves, and if they've slowed, and they've slowed because of subconcussive impact, now we can find ways to treat that. I'm going to be adding some gel into her hair, and that helps with the connection between the scalp and the electrodes. Eurocatch first studied junior A players for cognitive damage, and now the bantam level, kids 13 and 14 years of age. Turns out cognitive damage can be a cumulative thing. When we looked at the difference between the beginning of a hockey season and the end of the hockey season, we could detect um, impairments in their cognitive processing by measuring their brain waves. They call them sub-concussions. The damage can be significant even if the player never takes a major hit. Sensors were put in Bantam players' helmets to be sure the accumulating sub-concussions were from hockey and not something else. So if you think about your blood pressure, if you come into the doctor and you're hypertensive, you can treat that person back to a normal 120 over 80. And what we're talking about today is doing the same thing for your brain. The creators of Neurocatch say they can tell within minutes if you are concussed right at ringside. And even if you're not, you might be sub-concussed. You're probably never going to take the physicality out of the game, but at least now there's a measuring stick to tell coaches and players when a player's mental health is the one actually taking the hit. Tension at Global News. Still ahead, sick pioneers who helped build BC. So much discrimination. They were not getting paid equal wages. They couldn't live in certain parts of town. Why now is a great time to learn about the injustices and the joys that came with carving out a new life here. And in sports, the surging Canucks, can they keep the winning streak going with a change in net? Believe BC, featured on Global News Hour at 6, celebrates the innovative minds working together to reignite business throughout our province. Believe BC. Brought to you in part by the BCTF, our kids and their teachers, worth investing in. So, Fanny Vaughn, I was starting to believe that it <laughs> didn't rain in the Lower Mainland. <laughs> Yeah, over 10 days, we've had dry conditions. Uh, we've been chatting about a bit of a change on the way, and I'll have the timeline and what that means and looks like for our weekend in just a moment. Beautiful uh, video that was taken. This was from our camera guy, Pat Bell. This was in Gibson's today. It was gorgeous. Many spots basking in the sunshine and summer-like. Now, as we take a look at a current tower cam and what it looks like, I'm having a bit of trouble advancing the graphics. Um, maybe someone... Perfect. There we go. As we take a look at what we're seeing for our temperatures, uh, we are at still at 14 degrees. We've got a light window to the airport. You know what it is? I'm just going to run across. It's my clicker. Okay, here we go. There we go. <laughs> it's a different one. I got it now. All right, here we go. Southwesterly winds at 15 kilometers per hour. Temperatures today, we had a range of 15 out of the airport, areas away from the water, closer to 16 and 17 degrees. A quick glance, though, this is the next weather maker. We've had a ridge of high pressure that's been the dominant feature. It's weakening. This is the moisture that is going to push in. Now, most areas across the south coast will start to see some cloud cover. It's overnight tonight. We've got a dry start to the morning, and then by the afternoon, we have the potential for some showers moving in, and it's wet, especially 
especially for our Saturday and continuing in towards our Sunday. So there's the cloud cover, showers popping in for the afternoon and highs up to 14. However, the northern half of the province will still see dry conditions that will lead in towards the weekend. Areas towards the south, though, southern interior and increasing cloud cover. The bulk of the rain is going to fall over the weekend for both Saturday and Sunday. And most areas along the south coast will track that rain. But it is going to be heavy at times on and off through the day on Saturday. Drying out, though, for Sunday night and then back into some sunshine as we get in towards our Monday. All right, tonight's weather window. Gorgeous shot. This one taken the tulips in Abbotsford. Chris? It's beautiful. Feel like maybe you jinxed us, Chris, <laughs> with that thought. Just I hope not. Roll with it. Yeah, I should just roll. <laughs> uh, they say, Squire, that practice makes perfect, but the Canucks seem to be they're, testing that theory. Yes, they're bucking the trend. Um, that's an interesting thing for the Canucks. Uh, ever since they started playing games again, they actually haven't practiced between the games. We just felt it was more important to keep our team rested. I like how they skated the second game against Toronto. All they've had is pregame skates. Tonight starts four straight games against Ottawa. We'll have a full preview coming up. Also ahead, celebrating Sikh Heritage Month, the immense contributions this community made to building BC. I like Sophie's point. Let's just cut the practices out altogether. Let's go right to the games. I know. Well, who is the one who used to complain? Oh, Alan Iverson. Right. You talk about practice? Yeah, practice. He complained all <laughs> very vociferously about practicing. Uh, the uh, Canucks and Senators start a run of four straight games against each other, but for Vancouver, this is not an issue. They love seeing Ottawa across from them on the ice because this season Vancouver has already won five against the Senators. They're 5-0. and oh. Mind you, three of those wins came early when the Sens look worse than I did when I had a mustache. Believe me, it was bad. Not the Senators, my mustache. Uh, Ottawa has improved since then, and I like to think I have too. But the uh, Canucks are on a roll and still think they can make a miracle playoff run. Barry has a more in-depth preview from Rogers Arena. The Canucks will try to keep the momentum going tonight against the Senators after two very dramatic and inspiring victories against the Toronto Maple Leafs. Now, one of the reasons, or the big reason, the Canucks won both of those games was the play of Braden Holtby, who probably played his two best games as a Canuck. But he will get the rest tonight. And Thatcher Demko, who was the number one before the COVID outbreak, gets his first start in nearly a month. I felt it was tonight we need to get Demmer back in. We also needed to... Uh, probably give Holtz a, bre- a breather. These games haven't been easy on some of our guys, and Holtz was one of them. He was playing the full 60 minutes. It took a lot of energy out of him both games. Uh, perfect scenario. You've got two guys that are on top of their game, and uh, Holtz definitely was in the last two, and I'm expecting Demmer to be on top of his as well. The fact that the Canucks had their schedule redone can't be understated. Initially, they were supposed to play back-to-back nights, three and four, and then five and seven. But when it was redone, they have a break between games for their first five, and that recovery time is making a huge difference for the players. You know, I think it, it helps the guys that had the virus a lot. Um, you know, I, I know there's still some lingering effects with some of the guys, but um, you know, I think just uh, Kind of give them a day's rest after a game is helping a lot. And, um, you know, obviously our schedule is going to be ramping up soon. So, I mean, we got to take advantage and, you know, make sure we're all taking care of our bodies and, and uh, being ready to go each and every night. 
I mentioned how the Canucks love playing Ottawa. This is Vancouver's, or these are Vancouver's numbers against all their divisional opponents this year. You can see Ottawa 5-0. They actually have a winning record now against the first-place Maple Leafs. Speaking of which, Maple Leafs were in Winnipeg tonight, and there's Nick Felino playing his first game for Toronto. Of course, his father, Mike, used to play for the Maple Leafs many years ago. So let's see how they did. They lost two straight to the Canucks. Whoops, Connor Hellebuck not looking like Braden Holpe there. Austin Matthews, 34th of the year, 34 for 34. That made it 1-0. Second period, 3-2 Leafs. Matthews tees it up for Marner. And the final in this one, 5-3 as Toronto breaks its five-game losing streak. One of the reasons it was such a surprise the Whitecaps beat Portland last Sunday is the Timbers had played in Champions League and played okay. And the uh, Caps had only played exhibition games. But maybe those Champions League games sap the Timbers' strength. Saturday, the Whitecaps play another Champions League team in Toronto FC, which lost its MLS opener to Montreal 4-2. But they should be a lot better this week. Yeah, there's a reason why they've had so much success, you know, in, in recent years. A lot of continuity in that squad. Um, a lot of championships won, a lot of big games won. So there's so much experience and... And, uh, you know, new direction, new sort of style of play, new coaching staff, obviously. Um, but a lot of the same faces and, and clearly what we saw them do in the Champions League. It's uh, they have the ability to be a special group. And the game, which will be in Florida, will be live on AM 730, starting with the pregame show at 11 a.m. kickoff at noon. Whitecaps newcomers. Uh, Sayo Alessandre, Bruno Gaspar. They won't start, but they'll be with the team, so they could be substitutes. Same goes for Derek Cornelius. And uh, all-Canadian matchup at the Barcelona Open. It's on clay. It's Felix Auger-Aliassime against Denis Shapovalov, who is battling a bit of a sore shoulder, and it caused some issues. He lost the opening set 6-2. He had a tough day. Six double faults. His serve was broken four times. A lot of unforced errors. Al Yassim wins his 6-2, 6-2, and Felix is now 2-0 against his good buddy on the clay. There you go. All yeah. right, thanks very much, Squire. Uh, here is Jay Durant now with a preview of Global News at 11. Thanks, Chris. Crews on scene at a devastating barn fire between Abbotsford and Chilliwack. Smoke filling the sky over a number of buildings. We're hearing these barns were housing pigs, and sadly, most have been lost. We'll have the very latest tonight. Plus, why another Kelowna business owner is banning masks inside his store. He says it's over concerns that people who have been vaccinated can shed the virus. Those stories coming up tonight at 11. Chris, Sophie. All right. Thanks, Jay. Up next, how Canada's sick community has helped build this province and the country. April is Sick Heritage Month, celebrated throughout Canada. A time to recognize the many contributions sick communities have made to Canada's social, economic and cultural heritage. Community reporter Michael Newman has more on how we can recognize the legacy of B.C.'s historic sick community. People of sick faith have been part of B.C.'s cultural fabric for a long time. Well over 100 years, in fact, with some of the first six settlers arriving in B.C. as early as 1903. The first immigrants came here mostly from the colonies in Southeast Asia as part of the British Army or the British system. And their first uh, steps were in the, in the shores of British Columbia, in Vancouver mostly. And in Abbotsford or the Fraser Valley, the establishment is around 1905. April is Sikh Heritage Month in Canada, an opportunity to recognize the many ways Sikh Canadians have worked to enrich our community. For us, April is really an opportunity to honor and celebrate that history of resilience, 
that Sikhs in British Columbia have shown, whether it's through highlighting the stories of early Sikh migrants and their families, or highlighting the various types of legal battles that they face, or just the social situation. Because as we know, migrants and minorities of all groups often face a lot of struggle when it comes to establishing a new home and really paving that way for themselves. A place that really embodies that history is the Sikh Heritage Museum in Abbotsford, which is actually housed at the Gursik Gurdwara. Built in 1911, it is the oldest Gurdwara or temple in North America. It's a very important site of living memory, of history, of remembering what the pioneers went through and the settlers went through of the time. But I think at the time when it was built, it was a place for, for gathering. It was a place to call their own, a sovereign space, because they put up the Nishan Sab outside and said, this is our space, we are going to worship here and we're going to gather. And then it became a place to fight social causes. So injustices were fought from here. The newest addition to the museum speaks to that resilient history, a permanent outdoor exhibit dedicated to the Komagatamaru incident, where in 1914, 352 British subjects of Indian descent were denied entry into Vancouver and sent back to India. The exhibit examines the discriminatory Canadian immigration policies they faced and how their story remains relevant today. Bringing a permanent exhibit of the Komagata Maru that was designed by the Vancouver Maritime Museum was important to us, even this many years later, 107 years later, because everyone that stops here for a moment will read that history. And for a moment, they will reflect on the past. And for a moment, perhaps, it will lay a seed in their soul, in their spirit, to fight injustice, to remember the past and to say, we also are agents of change, that we can continue to be vigilant and continue to be aware of our surroundings and become politically engaged. Our story is a Canadian story. To learn more about the exhibit and other events during Sikh Heritage Month, go to SikHeritageMonthBC.ca. Michael Newman, Global News. Still lots to be done, obviously, but what a change in a century. Our boss, Upinder, is sick and uh, he is. proud to report up to him. All right, let's check in with Yvonne for one final word on the weather. So we've got cloud cover tomorrow morning. A chance of showers is going to pick up towards the afternoon and then some rainfall into the weekend so far should dry out towards uh, Sunday evening. So it's not a complete washout, but it's going to be wetter and cooler as we get into towards the next few. All right. I don't like it, but <laughs> we'll live with it. Thanks for watching, everyone. Have a great night. Good night, all.